Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, can we just do a quick sound check, please? Someone can just give me a quick uh, sound check. Let's make sure everyone can hear me properly. Okay, alhamdulillah, jazakallah khair. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim mubarik ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. Uh, welcome to our fifth lesson of QP3, Quranic uh, Progression Year 3. And alhamdulillah, last week we completed the tafsir of Surah Al-Zalzala, which was our first surah that we've covered this year. So inshallah ta'ala, today we will go on to the tafsir of of, uh, of Surah Al-Bayyina. Um, so inshallah ta'ala, what we're going to do is, uh, so last week we, we covered the final few verses of Surah Al-Zalzala, just a, a very quick recap. We spoke about the last three verses of Surah Al-Zalzala and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after mentioning the opening portion of Surah Al-Zalzala, where Allah Azza speaks about the gravity of Yawm Al-Qiyamah and the different major events that will take place on the onset of the Day of Judgment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then gives us the reasoning or the result of, of what will happen on that day. So those great events happen, but what, what does that culminate with? What does that end in? And that ends with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holding creation to account. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold each and every single one of us to account to the extent that even the smallest grain, the smallest seed, the smallest weight, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring forth of good and evil, respectively rewarding those who did good and punishing those who did evil. And so that is a surah that speaks about the gravity of Yawm Al-Qiyamah and the gravity of that day and in terms of, and, and it speaks of the precise nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's accounting and judgment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And how many things that how often have we said that there are so many things that we forget concerning what we do in terms of actions, in terms of speech, in terms of statements, in terms of the emotions that we bring about as a result of our actions and our deeds that we then neglect or we think too significant or too unimportant to, to uh, focus upon. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions within the Quran then how Allah azza wa holds all of that to account, right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would hold us to account for all of those things. So that was the tafsir of, of Surah Al-Zalzala. And as we can see, as we you know, we go through these surahs, especially these smaller surahs, each one of these surahs has within it very important principles and lessons that we can take. So the principle of being someone who constantly holds, we hold ourselves to account before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does so for us on the Day of Judgment is an extremely important principle. And it's something that if we were to apply correctly within ourselves would lead to us leading a much more uh, obedient lifestyle to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being much more God-fearing because if you are someone who always constantly remembers that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold you to account that Allah azza wa jalla is always watching that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is observing and recording everything that leads you then to have what is considered to be the highest level of this religion the level of ihsan and ta'bud Allah that you worship Allah as though you see him and even though you do not see him know that he sees you and if we were to do the same then with our children and our youngsters, that we remind them that even though their parents may not be watching, their teachers may not be watching, people who are older than them, more mature than them, whether that's family members or friends or members of their community may not be watching. 
but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always hears and always sees and always knows. That's something within a person creates that sense of, of, of what is muraqaba. Right? And muraqaba is the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is constantly watching you. And that sense of being watched constantly is one of the greatest ways to ward off the traps of shaitan and stop oneself from committing sins. Because if we think about it, the vast majority of the things that we do, the vast majority of the sins that we commit, we only do so because we think that other people won't know. They won't see us, they won't find out, they won't hear. And so that gives us a sense of, you know, in inverted commas, security or safety or f- a false sense of security and safety that shaitan places upon us. Allah Azza wa is telling us in Surah Al-Zalzal that the principle is that no, there's no such false sense of security. That yes, even though no one else upon the earth can see you or hear you or knows what you do, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows and sees and he records Jalla fi ula. And so that concept and that thought and that mindset is something which is extremely important. And that is how you cultivate within yourself taqwa. And look at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving these principles at the very beginning of Islam. These are Meccan surahs, early surahs, the vast majority of them. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is taking these principles and he is bringing them and applying them in, in within the community of the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in. And so that, that then leads to having a community of people who are God-fearing, a, people, a, a community of people who are God-conscious, a community of people who understand then that we are people who will be held to account. So therefore, if I oppress you, ultimately I am only oppressing myself. If I harm you, ultimately I will be the one who will be harmed because my deeds will be taken from me or I will be punished on Yom Al-Qiyamah, on the Day of Judgment. So that understanding is extremely important. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stresses to us in the Quran. So if we are people then who can take these principles and apply them, now that we know the in-depth, deep tafsir of the Quran, then that's how tafsir is meant to work. The tafsir, remember, is not just meant to be for us to learn the classical sayings of the scholars or to learn the positions, the different varying positions amongst the scholars with tafsir concerning the explanation or the meaning of a verse. It is about taking that knowledge then and applying it to the best of our ability within ourselves and the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we deal with others. That is something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. And that is why the companions radiallahu anma jama'in, when you understand then, once you understand this principle, the statement of some of the companions of how they would only take 10 verses of it at a time and study them and memorize them and learn them and understand them and apply them before moving on to the next 10. Because that is always the goal of of seeking knowledge. The goal is never to finish the book. It is never to finish the Quran. In our case, it is never to, to, no, the principle and the goal is always to benefit. So if you're benefiting, you're increasing in knowledge, you're coming close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're using your time in a wise manner. That is the whole goal of knowledge. The goal of knowledge has never been to finish all of these books, but that you take rarely or if little or anything from them. So if you look at the principles of the scholars, you find that there are scholars today, you know, I know some of our teachers and some of the scholars, for example, in Saudi Arabia, because I'm very familiar with the scholars of that country, they would spend years teaching teaching a book. Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shaqiti, Allah Ta'ala, in the mosque of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, took us years to finish Umdatul Hakam with him. And Umdatul Hakam is a very small collection of hadith that focuses on the chapters of fiqh. This is one of the smallest collections of hadith that you will find concerning that, because they only deals with the hadith that are collected in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, doesn't mention any of the hadith. We took years finishing that. And then the, and then the Shaykh Hafizahullah began Umdatul Fiqh, which is a matan, a text in Hanbali Fiqh. And again, took him years. I graduated and we still hadn't finished that book. 
So the scholars were never concerned about finishing things because what you will learn in terms of principles and so on, you will learn through that study and through that knowledge. And that is the mark of a good teacher. And if you find that kind of good teacher, then that is the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because I know that there were many of our teachers who started with their own teachers' books and it took them, for example, 20 years to finish Sahih al-Bukhari, 15 years to finish Tafsir ibn Kathir. So we're talking about like literally, you know, it's like most of your, a good chunk of your life, 20 years studying a single book. But what you will learn in that 20 years will make you and produce a scholar. Those people become scholars in their own right. So that is always the purpose of knowledge. And that's why it always reminds me of the, of the statement of Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah, when one of his um, sons came to him and he said concerning, uh, he asked his father who he should go to after his father passed away, which other scholars would he recommend that he studies with? So he mentioned the name of a scholar who wasn't well known and wasn't considered to be from amongst the most knowledgeable people of that time and in that land. So he said, oh, my father, is there not someone who is more knowledgeable than him? Aren't there people there that are more well known, more knowledgeable? He said, yes, but he has already attained the fruit of knowledge, meaning that he's a man of taqwa, a man of ikhlas, a man of piety, a man of sincerity. That's what you want from your teacher when you come to seek knowledge from them. So the teacher is the one who should, to the best of, their ability, the greatest teachers of those who bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who connect you to Allah, connect you with the Quran, connect you with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They are those who, as the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam, khayrun nas, either ru'u dhukir Allah, the best of people are those who, when you see them, they remind you of Allah. And so when you see them, whether they are scholars or not scholars, those people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed them with that ability and, with that, and that is inshallah a sign of goodness for them and it is a sign of Allah wanting good for them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them that ability and when people see them, they are reminded of Allah because of their character, because of their dealings, because of the way of what they remind others of and so on and so forth. So that was the tafsir of Surah Zalzala. And so inshallah ta'ala, this week we come on to um, Surah Al-Bayyina. And I want you to pay inshallah ta'ala close attention to the introduction of this surah uh, because I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And again, this is one of those things when, inshallah, as I said this year, we want to spend a bit more time where it's not just me teaching, but I want you to interact with me. I want you to respond to me. And I want you to start using and flexing those muscles of tafsir to build within ourselves, all of us, for all of us, myself included, what is called the malaka, the ability of making tafsir, of making connections, because we've done two years of tafsir now. And in that tafsir, we've used a number of, principles and mentioned a number of principles and gone through methodology and so on two years now now it's a good time to start start actually using some of those that knowledge using some of those principles applying them and seeing how it works and at the beginning it will always be a you know a stuttering process you 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 trip and you stand and you trip and you stand and you walk step by step it's a stumble at the beginning but as you train yourself and you get used to that and that is something which you will find is better. That's something which I also benefited from the methodology of some of our teachers. And in fact, if you read in the biographies of the teachers before that, one of the ways that they would teach is by examining their students and by testing them and by giving them responsibility to go away and research something and to go and do something. And that at the beginning will always be difficult because a student who researches a, an issue for the first time will come back and their research will always be deficient in some way, limited in some way, because they're not exposed to the width and the breadth of that subject. But that's the beginning. 
And then once they do that the second time and a third time, and they've done that then for a month and a year or two or five or ten, now they've developed within themselves their own ability to think, their own ability to understand, their own ability to make those connections. And that is what the process of being a student of knowledge is. If you at the end of you know a one-year, two-year, ten-year, twenty-year process can still not make connections for yourself, think for yourself, understand for yourself, and see how things weigh up between yourself, then you haven't really studied the methodology of knowledge. You've taken that knowledge, but you haven't understood the methodology. And that's why the scholars are eager when they teach fiqh to teach usul al-fiqh with it. When they teach hadith, they teach the sciences of hadith with it. And when they teach tafsir, they teach you the principles of tafsir alongside it so that you are then able to come and to see your for yourself or make those uh, make those um, deductions for yourself. And clearly, that then is relative to the person depending on how much they study and how much they advance in those studies. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who grants all success. So inshallah, we're going to begin with the muqaddimah, the introduction of this surah. And as we always do, we'll begin with the names of the surahs. But then when we come on to some of the other discussions, like whether it's Mecca or Madani and so on, that's when I want some of your feedback, inshallah ta'ala. So the introduction of this surah, the names of this surah. I have for you seven names, seven names for the surah that I have found within the various um, collections of, of, of hadith and tafsir. The first of them is the one that we know this surah by now, the name that we know this surah by now, and the one that it is most famously known by now, and that is Suratul Bayina. Suratul Bayina. And that is found at the end of the first verse of this surah, Hatta Ta'tiyahumul Bayina. Right? And Bayina means proof, it means evidence, it means clarity, and so on. And this is the name that is found in a number of works of the early scholars of hadith, such as Ibn Abi Hatim, rahimahullah ta'ala. Remember, Ibn Abi Hatim is a famous scholar of, of, of hadith, but he's also a scholar of tafsir because one of his, his works, his tafsir, is a collection of all of the different narrations of the Salaf concerning tafsir that he found. Also, Imam al-Nasai, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his sunan, uh, also refers to the surah, suratul bayyina. And that's also, by the way, a very good way of understanding. I think we probably mentioned this before, but just in case I've overlooked to mention it, one of the good ways of understanding how the Salaf understood the uh, or the tafsir of a surah or the names of a surah or what is what is considered, for example, in the surah to be abrogated, for example, a very good resource for that is the collections of hadith. Because the majority of the scholars of hadith, especially like the six collections of hadith and some of their contemporaries like the Muslim Imam Ahmad and the Mutta Imam Malik and the Musannaf Ibn Abi Shayba and Abdul Razak and so on. These are early collections of hadith, right? So, for example, if you look at um, if you look at some of these scholars, uh, some of them passed away around the year 300, like the last of them to pass away. They, they pass away around the year 300 of the Hijra, 350 of the Hijra. This is the kind of era we're talking about. So, still within the first three-odd centuries of Islam. So, there are people who are very much amongst you know, a, a plethora of scholars, thousands of scholars that are living of their time. So when they say that it is the tafsir of Surah Bayyina, for example, or Surah Zalzara, and they name it with that, it shows you that that was one of the dominant names of the Surah during that time. So An-Nasai also mentions this. And then later on, we have Al-Imam Al-Baghawi and Ibn Jawzi, amongst others from the scholars of tafsir, who mention this as Surah Al-Bayyina. And again, just in case I've forgotten to mention this before, a very good work from the collections of tafsir, from the books of tafsir that focuses on the names of surahs and what you will find in different uh, writings of the Mus'haf, in different copies of the Mus'haf, how surahs were named in the different writings of the Mus'haf in early times, as well as what the scholars have said, is the tafsir of Ibn Ashur. 
Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala in his tahrir wa tanweer, his tafsir, focuses on this. And that's not something which you will find in many, especially even of the early, uh, the early uh, collections of tafsir and the works of tafsir. You don't find scholars pinpointing and focusing on the various names that a surah is known by. Sometimes a suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala does this, especially in Al-Itqan and in other uh, others of his works. But you won't find, even suyuti is relatively not too early, right? He died around the year 900 and 11 or something so he's you know still uh, relatively later on concerning the names of the scholars so you will find ibn ashur ta'ala pays very good attention to this and it's always good to refer to that if you want more information in terms of the names of any of the surahs of the quran so the first of the seven is al-bayyina right and we said ibn abi hatim and nasai al-baghawi and ibn al-jawzi amongst the scholars of islam the second name that it is known by is lam kafaru which is taken from the first portion of the first verse. right? And this is actually a name that is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, which we'll mention in a short while when the Prophet is referring to this, to this particular surah. This is how it is named in the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that is authentic. And so that is the second name by which this surah is known. The third name by which it is known is uh, an even shorter uh, or even shorter form of the beginning of the surah, and that is surah lam yakun, surah lam yakun, and that's what Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, before him, Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, al-Imam al-Tirmidhi, in his jami, his collection of hadith, al-Imam al-Tabari, ibn Atiyah, ibn Kathir, alayhi muhammatullah. So one of the most common names that you will find, especially in the early collections of hadith and tafsir, for the name of this surah, is surah lam yakun. And as we've mentioned numerous times before, that is a very common uh, common way of the early scholars naming a surah. If it doesn't have a set name that it is known by, they will often refer to it using the opening part of its first verse, the first few words or so. So we have al-bayyina, we have lam yakun ladina kafaru, and we have surah lam yakun. The fourth name that it is known by is ahlul kitab, the people of the book. And this I didn't find in um, you know in any of the early collections of, of hadith or tafsir, but Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala says that it is found in some of the early copies of the Mus'haf, what is recorded as being some of the early manuscripts and the copies of the Mus'haf. And in particular, he says in the Mus'haf of Ubay ibn Ka'ab, radiyallahu an, the famous companion and the famous scholar of the Quran, this is how he referred to the surah. He used to call it Surah to Ahlil Kitab, the surah of the people of the book right? and obviously there's nothing wrong by having a surah named after a group of non-muslims Allah as we know has we have a surah in the Quran called Surah Al-Munafiqun right so Munafiqun is a hypocrite and they are the worst of the disbelievers so there is nothing that goes against that being a name that you will find in some of them so that's what what is mentioned by Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala so that's number four Ahlul Kitab the fifth name that it is known by is Al-Bariyah Right, Al-Bariyah. And that's taken from uh, the verses towards the end of the surah, verses 6 and 7, where Allah Azza wa refers to the people of the fire as Sharul Bariyah, the worst of all creation, and the people of paradise as Khairul Bariyah, the best of all creation. So, surah Al-Bariyah. And again, Ibn Ashur ta'ala, is the one who mentions this, and he says that it is what is referred to as a surah by Abu Amr al-Dani. And as we mentioned before, I believe, when we were speaking about the, the, the QP special that we did on the Qira'at, on the different modes and methods of recitation of the Qur'an, we said that Ad-Dani is one of the famous scholars of the Qira'at, and he's from 
the teachers or the teachers of the teachers of Imam al-Shatibi rahimahullah ta'ala. So when Imam al-Shatibi came and he did his famous poetry that is known as the Shatibiya in Qira'at, it is actually a, uh, a poetic version and a summary of a book and that book was by Ad-Dani rahimahullah ta'ala. So he's one of the famous scholars of of the Qira'at and, and most people that have an ijazah, if not everyone that has an ijazah today in one of the Qira'at, one of the names that they often find within their ijazah will be a shatibi And one of the names that they will find within their ijazah is the name of the scholar also a dani because he's from the teachers of a shatibi So that's the fifth name. So so far we have al-bayyina, lam yakun al-ladhina kafaru, surah lam yakun, surah ahlul kitab, surah al-bariya. The sixth name is also one that Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala mentions and that is surah al Infikak, al-infikak, which is the root word of one of the words that is mentioned in the first verse of this surah. Can anyone tell me what that is? Which verse or which word of the first verse is al-infikak the root word for? So when we look at the first verse, Allah Azzawajal says, لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ Which of those words are we looking at? Yes, so Salih and Sumaira, مُنْفَكِّينَ and Umm Dawood and others. جزاكمالله خير. So مُنْفَكِّينَ is, uh, is a word, the asal of which or the root of which is الْإِنْفِكَاك. So الْإِنْفِكَاك and munfakin, we will speak about the meaning of it, but generally it means to become separated or to distance yourself or to stop or something. That's what al-infikak means. So al-infikak here is one of the names that is also mentioned as being the name of the surah, and that is what is also referred to by Ibn Ashur, is tafsir. And one of the things that uh, Ibn Ashur does, so, you know, like with the last few names now, so at the beginning I said to you, the scholars of hadith said this, and scholars of tafsir named this surah in this way. Now it's Ibn Ashur, Ibn Ashur. What is Ibn Ashur doing? Where is he taking these other names then, if they're not mentioned in the early works of tafsir, if they're not mentioned, for example, in the works of hadith? Ibn Ashur, what he's doing is, he's looking at the different early manuscripts of the Mus'haf. Right, so you have a collection of Mus'haf, you know, like if you go to these different museums even today, or these libraries that have these old copies of the Qur'an that were written over time, some from, you know, the 3rd century, the 4th century, the 5th century, what he's looking at to see is, how were these surahs named during that time, right? So it shows you that these names were prevalent at one time or at one place anyway in some lands, they were prevalent, and over time then obviously now, we have set names also that have become prevalent amongst them. And by the way, those names generally within the Qur'an, therefore, as we can see, are not sunnah, right? They're not, for example, wahi. It's not that you have to call the surah by that way. So even if today someone was to refer to surah al-bayyina, surah lam yakun, or surah lam yakun in kafar, they would have a precedent for that. And no one can come and say to them, you know, why are you not doing that? Obviously, in terms of ease of reference and just to, for the sake of clarity, to stick to the names that people are familiar with is, is better. So Al-Infikak is the sixth name. The seventh and final name then is Al-Qayyimah. Al-Qayyimah. And Al-Qayyimah um, is also taken from the Surah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَذَلِكَ دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةِ And again, this is something which Ibn Ashur ta'ala mentions. And again, he, he ascribes this particular naming of the Surah to Al-Qayyimah to Al-Imam Ad-Dani as well, rahimahullahu ta'ala. So these are the seven names. So to recap, the first three are what you will find, or what I found anyway, in the early collections of Hadith and Tafsir. And then the other four are names that you find in the different Musahif that Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, refers to in his Tafsir. So the first three that you find in the early collections of Hadith and Tafsir is Al-Bayyina, 
لم يكن الذين كفروا أن لم يكن those are the three that are known that this surah is known by and then you have الأهل الكتاب البرية الانفكاك and القيمة الانفكاك and القيمة and صالح very kindly خير on the chat in our comments has uh, written that down for you for greater clarity Okay, so that's the first issue when it comes to our introduction, as we know. So before we go on to the next issue, which is um, normally what I would do is I would go into the Mecca and Madani, but I want to mention to you a hadith concerning this surah that is mentioned in the sunnah. And uh, and, and this is where you get that wording of, you know, as I said, one of the names of this surah, comes from a hadith. This is the hadith that I'm referring to. And it is the hadith of Al-Bukhari and Muslim. The hadith of Al-Bukhari and Muslim of Anas ibn Malik, radiyallahu an, the famous companion that he said, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said one day to Ubay ibn Ka'b, radiyallahu an. So Ubay ibn Ka'b, as we mentioned before, is one of the companions of the Ansar, but he's one of the most knowledgeable of the companions of the Ansar, and especially when it comes to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is from the Qurra, from the reciters of the Qur'an, and from the most knowledgeable of the companions regarding the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, especially in terms of its recitation and memorization and so on. And that's why in the time of Umar, radiallahu an, when he, when he asked the people to unite behind an imam in the taraweeh prayer, because we know that the Prophet ﷺ initially prayed taraweeh in congregation for a few days, and then he stopped out of fear that it would become obligatory Umar radiallahu anhu wanted to revive the sunnah because now that the Prophet has passed away, there's no longer that fear that it will become an obligation. So he wanted to revive a sunnah that already existed of congregating people together behind a single imam. And so one of the imams that he chose was Ubay ibn Ka'b radiallahu anhu and as well as alongside Tamim al-Dari radiallahu anhu as is mentioned in the Muta'ab al Malik and other collections of hadith. So Ubay ibn Ka'b is well known amongst the companions radiallahu anhu majma'in for his memory of the Qur'an and the Prophet ﷺ would often read to him and recite to him and so on because it's something which he uh, which he was it was his role to preserve the Qur'an and to remember memorize the Qur'an and teach the Qur'an and so on so Anas ibn Malik radiallahu an says that the Prophet ﷺ said to Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu an indeed Allah inna Allah amarani an aqra alayk Allah has commanded me that I should recite to you a surah lam yakun kafaru and so in the hadith wording, this is the name that it is given. I have been commanded to recite to you, لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا So then Ubay ibn Ka'b radiallahu an asks, he says, O Messenger of Allah, did Allah name me? Meaning that Allah, because Prophet is saying, Allah commanded me to read to you. So he's saying, did Allah name me? By name he said, go and read this to Ka'b radiallahu an. Ubay, rather, Ubay ibn Ka'b radiallahu an. The Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, na'am, yes. So Ubay radiallahu an began to cry because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose him and spoke to him, spoke by his name, right? Spoke to him or mentioned him by name. So this is a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's an authentic hadith because it's in Bukhari Muslim that speaks about this hadith. Is there a, it's not particularly a virtue of the surah per se, doesn't speak about any extra reward or any extra virtue for reading the surah or memorizing the surah or anything. Rather, it's more of a virtue for a companion, Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu anhu. So if anything, it is, an, it is a virtue more for him. But because the name of the surah is mentioned here, then it's something which, uh, you know, which is uh, which is mentioned concerning, you know, at the beginning of the, of the 
of the tafsir of the surah. It's a hadith that refers to the surah, and so it is mentioned in the works of tafsir. So now we go on to the issue that we normally come on to next. This surah has eight verses, so it's eight verses, so similar, similar to Surah Al-Zalzalah. Uh, but the next issue in our introduction, therefore, is whether there, um, whether the this surah is a Makki surah or a Madani surah. And as we mentioned before, Makki means pre-Hijra, Madani means post-Hijra. And this is a surah in which there is actually some quite some difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir um, concerning whether this hadith, whether this surah is a Makki surah or a Madani surah. It's a Makki surah or a Madani surah. And this is where I want to have some of the discuss- discussion now because we've done for every surah that we've covered so far. We always go into this um, discussion of Makki and Madani. We even did like a short session, I think, or maybe even a whole session. I don't remember now, but we did a session concerning Makki and Madani and the different opinions amongst scholars of Islam concerning what that refers to. And we, we chose one that we said that was stronger and so on and so forth. So the point is that we've done this quite a bit now. So the question here is how do we decide? When a surah is Makki or Madani, there is a difference of opinion. Is there ways or are there signs or are they different things that we can deduce and take that we will find that will help us to arrive at some type of conclusion, some form of conclusion, whether the surah is Makki or Madani. So one of the things that you find now, obviously, is if you open a mushaf, a, a regular mushaf, like for example, the, the one that's printed in Saudi Arabia by the King Fahad printing complex in Medina, or even some of the other ones, or you will find often sometimes written within just at the beginning of a surah, or sometimes written in the end index at the end of the Quran, of the Mus'haf, in the index, you will find that they normally mention for every surah, whether it's Makki or Madani. And they don't give you a difference of opinion, they just tell you it's Makki or it's Madani. But as we've seen now, a number of these surahs, even though we may say that they are Makki or Madani, actually you find amongst the Salaf and amongst some of the scholars of Tafsir that there was a difference of opinion for a number of these surahs. So what they're doing then, therefore, in that version or in that copy of the Mus'haf that you have, is that they're giving you what they consider to be the strongest of those opinions. But the point is that if you delve deeper, you often find that there is a difference of opinion concerning this issue. And we've mentioned before reasons as to why that may occur as we've discussed some of these points. So likewise in Surah Al-Bayyina, there is a difference of opinion. So amongst the scholars are those who say that it is a Makki Surah revealed before the Hijrah. And amongst the most people, the most famous people that it is said supported this position was the mother of the believers, Aisha, radiallahu anha, amongst others. And it is the position that you find is mentioned amongst by some of the scholars of Tafsir as well. From amongst them, Al-Imam Al-Baghawi, in his Tafsir, Tafsir Al-Baghawi, he mentioned the surah as being a Makki surah. And others will mention you know, the difference of opinion without really choosing one. So Al-Qurtubi and others usually uh, don't really necessarily choose. They just mention to you what they consider the, the difference of opinion that occurs. right? And actually, Ibn Atiyah, if I remember correctly, now, Ibn Atiyah, in his Tafsir, mentions that this is the opinion of the majority. right? Mentions that this is the opinion of the majority even though you will find others that say, actually, the opinion of the majority is that it is a Madani surah. But Ibn Atiyah, whether that, that is a mistake on his part or whether it's something which he found somewhere, he doesn't reference this. He says, but he ascribes this opinion of it being a Makki surah, which is the position of Aisha radiallahu anha, amongst others, from amongst the, the scholars of tafsir, saying that it is a Makki surah. The second opinion, therefore, that it is a Madani surah. And as I said, um, there are a number of scholars who consider this to be the position of the Jamhur, of the majority of the scholars of Tafsir. And you find that actually m- most of them will say this is the opinion of the majority. Ibn Atiyah, 
seems to have either made a mistake or he found something else and he chose the other position for the majority of the scholars of tafsir hold that this surah is madani that's the opinion of the majority so even if they don't choose necessarily between the two as to which one is stronger they will say but this is the position of the majority and the companion that famously supported this position was abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma the famous companion and scholar of tafsir and amongst the scholars who chose this position from amongst the, the scholars of tafsir was al-imam ibn kathir rahimahullah ta'ala amongst others and i think now in in most musahif anyway if you were to look at the index you will find that they list this surah as a madani surah my question for you therefore is what can you see from just what we've discussed from two things number one what i've mentioned to you so far already from the introduction that we've done so far so whether that's the hadith that i mentioned or the names of the surahs that we covered and number two just by looking at the surah itself by just looking at the arabic and looking at the translation, if you need the translation. So without us going into any further detail, any tafsir, any uh, opinions, any statements of the scholars, how can we, what are some of the signs, what are some of the evidences that we can use to support either position, whether it's a Makki surah or whether it's a, a Madani surah. So this is what I want you to help me with. Right? I want us to think now, think back to those principles that we've covered before where we've had differences of opinion and how sometimes we've made tarjih, we've chosen a position, how sometimes, for example, we will there'll be some mitigating circumstance or there'll be something that we'll, we'll derive. It's not obviously obvious, it's not overt, because it was if it was obvious and overt, there wouldn't be a difference of opinion. But how can we make some of those deductions, whether you choose the position of Mecca or Medini for either of them? Because the point here isn't to choose what is the correct or stronger opinion, you know, I will, I will, inshallah, we can go into that slightly later. The question here, or the point here, is to use that skill, to develop that skill. And so that's what we're trying to do here, rather than focusing on the end result, right? The end result, inshallah, is something that we will look at slightly later. Solange says, the method, the mention of Ahl Kitab suggests that it is Madani, because there was not much interaction with them in the Meccan era. So that's very good, right? So that's a very good method of deduction. The fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is focusing on the Yahud and the Nasara, the Jews and the Christians, the people of the book, is, as we know, generally speaking, something that happens more towards the Madani surahs rather than the Makki surah. So that's a very good deduction to make. The position that you will find some of the scholars mentioning, Imam al-Shawkani, ta'ala, mentions just to, you know, kind of like, uh, just to kind of throw a curveball into there, is that they will say, for example, that um, because the Jews and the Christians used to worship, uh, other than uh, they used to worship other than Allah by saying that Uzair is the son of Allah and and um, and uh, Isa alayhi salam is the son of Allah. That's why they're mentioned in this verse along with the mushrikeen. So Allah says, min ahl kitabi wal mushrikeen. And what Allah Azza wa is saying that they would also fall under the mushrikeen in general. So it's not specifically referring to them. It's referring to the mushrikeen that they are involved within it as well. But anyway, that's a different point. The point is that that is a very good uh, deduction. Jazakallah khair. Muniza mentions the same thing. Madani surahs usually mention the people of the book. Uh, Sumaira, very good. What Solange mentions, but also zakah, because zakah is mentioned in or is legislated in Mecca in, in Medina, which is correct, right? So when Allah Azza wa says, "Wama umiru illa liyabudullaha muhlisina lahudina hunafa wa yuqimu salata wa yuqtu zakah." Right, and this is something which we will mention, inshallah, when we come onto the tafsir. In fact, Ibn Atiyah, rahimahullah taala. Even though he he kind of like said that the position of the majority is Mecca, he says that one of the one of the things that shows that this surah is Madani, one of the evidences that could be used is the fact that Allah mentions and specifies zakah, and zakah is something which is legislated 
post-Hijra and not pre-Hijra. So that's also very, very good as well. That is something which Ibn Atiyah mentions himself, right? So Lanjul, the mention of Zakat also point towards that. So again, these are not necessarily definitive, right? Because it's hard to be definitive. And obviously Ibn Atiyah and other scholars have, have come across this stuff before, but these are indications, right? So obviously when there's a difference of opinion, it means that there is no clear-cut evidence. If there was a clear-cut one, there wouldn't be a difference of opinion, like with some of the surahs of the Qur'an. When there's a difference of opinion, what we have to do is try to deduce and derive and look at different things and so on. So, uh, Sarah says, Ayah 4 talks about the people of the book in Medina. Ayah 5 about zakat laws, so very good. That's also the same. Muhammad, the likely one, other one will be in Mecca. They did not read the Quran that open. So the calling of Kaab to read it would have happened in Medina. Which is, you're kind of there, but not so much in what you're, what you're saying. Because there's no reason why the Prophet wouldn't have read the Quran out loud to a companion. So yes, they didn't open, read the Qur'an openly to the wider community. For the Prophet to go to certain companions, as he did, he taught them the Qur'an in Mecca. So there's no reason why that couldn't happen. So your, your, one is, your point is, is, is correct, but not from the way that you mention it. The, the way that you would deduce it from the hadith is that Ubayy ibn Ka'b is a companion who only lived in Medina. He's from the Ansar. So he wasn't in the Meccan period. He's not from the Muhajirin. He's from the Ansar. So the fact that he's mentioned in the hadith by name, go and read it to Ubayy ibn Ka'b shows or would indicate that this surah is a Medani surah then. Now, clearly the response to that. What is the response to that? How could we respond to that? So those scholars who say, no, it's still a Mecca surah, they're obviously aware of the hadiths in Bukhari Muslims. It's not like a you know, a, a fringe hadith, it's a very mainstream hadith, how would they have uh, responded to that? So Salanj, very good. The response to that would be, he could have been asked to recite it years after its revelation. So it could have been that the Prophet was just told to read it to him at that time. So he read it to him. Doesn't necessarily mean that it was revealed at that moment, but rather that he's just been commanded. And so that's also very important when you look at hadith, it's very important to understand the wording and the message of the hadith. The hadith doesn't speak about revelation. It speaks about recitation. And that could be interpreted in both ways. And in fact, there are some wordings of the hadith that say that it was at the time of revelation. When it was revealed, the Prophet was told to go and recite it to Ibn Ka'ab radiallahu anh. But that is not the wording of Al-Bukhari and Muslim. It is in some of the other wordings of this narration. So some of the scholars who took those other wordings hold on to the position, therefore, that it's Madani. Those scholars who just took the wording of Bukhari and Muslim would have said, no, actually, the hadith, it could have been, it's possible that it was revealed in Mecca, but now the Prophet has just been commanded to read it and recite it to Ubayy ibn Ka'b, radiallahu anhu, for whatever reason. So anyway, that's very good. That's like, that's what I wanted to see, and inshallah, you know, you've done very well. That's what we need to do. So when it comes to this position, and remember that always in the class, I may not necessarily do this and go into so much detail concerning who said what and why and when and whatever, but the point is that one of the benefits of seeing this is... Okay, so Salanj asks a very good question. I can't see anything that points towards it being a surah. Very interested in knowing what it is. One of the ways that they, or one of the things that they would say that it is a Makki surah is its length. Because if you look at the Madani surahs, the vast majority of them, the vast overwhelming majority are longer. Likewise, the verses of the surah. So if you look at the verses are extremely long as well, which again, it goes against the norm of the Mecca surah. So the only other like Madani surahs that are even short, like Surah Fath and Surah, sorry, Surah Nasr, and those surahs are still short in their verses. Whereas this surah doesn't even have that same type of 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 um, of, of, of things. So that's something which you can also. Um, that's what they look at as well. The form of the content, the 
the the the the, the, the length of the surah, the length of the verses, and so on. Amreen, interaction with the people of the book may also indicate late Meccan period. Yeah, so Surah Al-Kahf and Surah Isra, very good, also have some mentions of the people of the book and so on. So it is possible. So that's why I said nothing is definitive. If it was definitive, there wouldn't be a difference of opinion. Uh, but again, it is about the, you know, looking at those signs and so on. So again, the point being here is that it's something which we do, even if it's not mentioned necessarily, or if you're doing your own reading, even away from QP, you're reading Ibn Kathir, or for those of you that followed Jalalain, and you found some of those, um, you know, some of those issues, one of the ways of developing your own ability to make tafsir, especially for those of you that have done tafsir before, you've been to courses, you've attended lectures, is now that you've taken that information, try to take the principles and take the methodology because once you do that, you, it's much more easier and more able for you. And that's how you develop as a student of tafsir and a student of knowledge in general. And that's the same, by the way, for hadith, for fiqh, for any science of Islam. So if you have that ability and you're taught that way of of developing methodology yourself and taking principles and applying them and using them that has always been the process of knowledge that is how you have scholars that produce scholars right students of knowledge who produce students of knowledge so our teachers were students of teachers and they were students of teachers how does your teacher become a scholar how are the scholars today across the muslim world scholars in their own right everyone started where we started everyone started with you know surah al-nas everyone started with alif bata everyone starts with the first hadith in in arba'in al-nawawi the fourth hadith of nawawi everyone starts with the chapter of water in fiqh everyone starts from the same place the method and the way that it is done is that you're producing students of knowledge you're advancing them you're helping them by teaching them those principles and how to use them as well so inshallah ta'ala over over um you know the next uh, this year anyway in particular we will focus more on this ta'ala as and when it is possible to do so. So we may not do every time because as you can see, it takes a, a good while to, to have this type of discussion. But I think inshallah, if, if you guys, especially if you guys enjoy and you want to do more, I will inshallah ta'ala try to incorporate more and try to keep it balanced so that we don't go too far into this so that you know, we're just having discussions all the time and we're not really getting much tafsir done either. So at the beginning of Surah Al-Bayyinah, going into this actual surah itself, as we said, it's of eight verses. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by saying, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ Allah begins by saying, those who disbelieve among the people of the book and the idolaters were not about to change their ways until they were sent clear evidence until they were sent clear evidence now with this particular surah i'm going to um go into into quite some detail sorry in, in this first verse we're going to go into quite some detail and i'm not sure if we'll get to the end of this uh, in today's lesson but this is something which you will find there is a great difference of opinion over what is the great difference of opinion over in this verse in fact to the extent that you will find al-wahidi rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir al-wahidi has a well-known tafsir, uh, an abridged tafsir, which is even to today in many parts of the Muslim world, like in North Africa and other places, when they come to study tafsir, one of the books that they will use, you know, in some places is tafsir jarali, in some places tafsir al-Kathir and others, tafsir al-Wahidi is still used. It's a shorter tafsir, a bit like Jalalain, and, and the style is similar, and some people say that the Jalalain benefited from al-Wahidi in his, in his method and approach to tafsir. He mentions, um, you know, his tafsir is 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 also of that of that way. He has obviously some errors and mistakes in it, like Jalalain, but generally it is is a tafsir that is still today widely used and studied, and read. 
Al-Wahidi in his tafsir mentions concerning this first verse, he says that it is one of the most difficult verses of tafsir. One of the most difficult verses of tafsir. What does he mean by that? He means that there are so many varying different opinions concerning the meaning of this verse that it is difficult, therefore, to arrive at one position. That is his opinion. And you will find this statement amongst the scholars of tafsir for various verses of the Qur'an. So Al-Wahidi said it concerning the first verse of Surah Bayyina. Others said it concerning some of the verses of Surah Ma'ida, like, for example, the verse of testimony at the time of death in Surah Ma'idah. verse in Surah Ma'ida, some of the scholars said that is one of the most difficult to make tafsir of. And others, you will find like maybe like 10, 12 opinions if you read the different various books of tafsir every so often. And that's, by the way, a very nice, um, you know, like one of the things, as, as we said, Last week, I think, in the books of tafsir, there are so many gems that you can take. There, they're not necessarily tafsir; they're just gems and pearls that you can uh, extricate from them. One of those gems is these statements of the scholars that they have that this verse we found to be the most difficult to make tafsir of. I found this verse to be the most difficult when it came to tafsir, right? And you'll find varying opinions, right? And that's because those verses or those scholars differed. We will see towards the end that there were some scholars who didn't find that same level of difficulty when it came to the tafsir of this verse. But no doubt there are a number of varying opinions concerning what is being meant concerning this surah. What is What are the two issues that they that they have a difference of or where the difference kind of centers around in, in the first verse? Over two things. Number one, the meaning of the word munfakin. Right? So remember we said one of the names of the surah is al-infikak, which comes from, it is the root word of this word munfakin. What does the word munfakin mean? And what does it refer to here in this verse? That's something which they differed over. That's the first point of, of, of difference. The second point of difference, right, and remember again, one of the methodologies of tafsir is when you have differences, try to understand why and where those differences come, what they center around. The second point is the last word of the verse, and that is al-bayyina, clear evidence. What does the clear evidence refer to? So what Allah, what is Allah Azza wa saying? Munfakin. They will not change their ways. They will not stop. Something will not happen. What is that thing? What is that word munfakin mean? Does it mean to stop? Does it mean to change? Does it mean to accept? Does it mean to reject? What is it referring to? And the clear evidence, the bayina, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala referring to? But before we get into that, obviously, let us begin from the beginning. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Those who disbelieve, Min ahlil kitabi wal mushrikeen, among the people of the book and the mushrikeen. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, obviously the ahlul kitab are referring to the Jews and the Christians, and the mushrikeen, the idolaters, and the polytheists refer to others who worship anything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the word mushrikeen generally in the Quran, when it is referred to in the Quran, includes everyone. Right, so the word kafir, the word mushrik, disbeliever, polytheist, and the word mushrik comes from shirk, which means anyone that associates something with Allah in worship. That that is a, if you like, a a catch-all phrase. It includes every type of disbeliever. So you are either Muslim or you're a disbeliever. You're either a mu'min, a believer, or you're someone who doesn't believe in worshiping Allah Subhanahu wa Taala alone. So that is a general term. However, sometimes Allah Subhanahu wa Taala specifies. Certain groups of people, like we have obviously in a number of verses of the Quran that Allah Azza wa refers to the Ahlul Kitab, the people of the book, Ya Ahlul Kitab, and Allah refers to them in specifically. And then sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to them even in more 
uh, in more distinct detail. So Allah refers to the Christians as Christians, the Jews and the Jews. So those who believe and those who are Jews and those who are Christians. And sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can refer to other uh, beliefs and other religions such as the Magians, the Majus, as Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in Surah Al-Hajj. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies, so if Allah Azza wa Jal mentions generally the word kafirin, mushrikeen, first to all of them. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then specifies, he specifies the people of the book, the Jews, the Christians, and so on. In this verse, though, what we find is Allah Azza wa joins between the two. So we just said the mushrikeen includes everyone. So why then does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention Ahlul Kitab, one mushrikeen? Why not just say mushrikeen? They include everyone. Mushrikeen would include the Jews, includes the Christians, includes everyone. So why define them first or specify them first and then mention all of the other disbelievers as well? And that is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will begin by speaking about all of them. But then Allah Azza wa Jal towards the middle of the surah, as you see, changes. And the address now changes and shifts from all of the disbelievers to the people of the book specifically. And that happens around verse, I think, four or five. So when that happens, a shift, now Allah Azza wa Jal is addressing particularly the Ahlul Kitab, the Jews and the Christians, the people of the scriptures of the book. And so therefore, because there will be that differentiation because there will be that split in who is being referred to. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by mentioning all of them together at the beginning and Allah azza wa jal knows best. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the people of the book which includes the Jews and the Christians and all of the idolaters. And he says, Munfakina, which the translation that we have here which is the one of Professor Abdul Halim were not about to change their ways. And in fact, one of the things that I wanted to do, which I will do now, inshallah, very quickly, is look at the other translations, because that's something which is always helpful to see how other people have translated this first. So uh, just give me one second here. Let me bring this up. So we have, if we bring up, let's see. So Muhsin Khan says, those who disbelieve from among the people of the scripture and among al-Mushrikun were not going to leave their disbelief until there came to them clear evidence. Sahih International, those who disbelieved among the people of the scripture and the polytheists were not to be parted from misbelief until there came to them clear evidence. Yusuf Ali, those who reject truth among the people of the book and among the polytheists were not going to depart from their ways until there should come to them clear evidence. Mufti Taqi Uthmani, those who disbelieved from among the people of the book and the polytheists were not expected to desist from their wrong beliefs unless there came, comes to them a clear proof. Right. So we have being stopped and we have changing their ways and we have departing from what they were upon. Right. So um, those are the different translations that we have. So the word munfakina, what does it refer to? Right? I said this is where you have the first major difference of opinion. Qatada and Mujahid, rahimahumullah, from the early scholars of tafsir, as we know, said the word munfakina means that they will not stop what they are doing. Will not stop what they are doing. Uh, Al-Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, in the Sahih, when he came to explaining the word munfakin, he said the word munfakin means za'ilin, that they will continue to be on their ways until. Right? Um, Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala, said concerning uh, or rather Ibn Zayd rahimahullah said concerning the word munfakin that they will not stop doing what they are doing until they separate from that when they see the clear evidence and obviously the second issue is what is the clear evidence referring to 
Is it referring to the Quran? Is that the clear evidence? Is it referring to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Is it referring to something else that they see uh, that that makes them very clear? Al Imam Al Tabari rahimahullah taala he says that the scholars of Tafsir differed concerning this verse. He said so. Some of them said that these disbelievers and the people of the scriptures, the Torah and the Gospel, and the and the disbelievers from those who worshipped other than Allah subhanahu wa taala will not stop until there comes to them. So the word Munfakin he says, will not stop, will not desist, um, will not desist uh, until until the clear evidence comes to them. He says that clear evidence is the Quran. He says that's one opinion that is referring to the Quran. The second opinion he says, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that others from amongst the scholars said that the people of the book and the Mushrikun will not stop what they were upon, will not stop uh, holding on to the description of the Prophet ﷺ that they found within their scriptures until he would be sent. And once he was sent, meaning it was actually the Prophet ﷺ who came as the final Prophet, then they would leave him. Then they would stop and they would turn away from him. What is the difference between these two opinions? These are the two opinions that he refers to. The first one is that the disbelievers continue upon their evil and they continue upon their disbelief until the Quran comes to them. And when the Quran comes to them, one of two things happens. Number one is those who wish to believe accept the teachings of the Quran and they become Muslim. And those who want to continue, then the evidence has been established upon them. Right? So that's the first opinion. The second opinion that he mentions, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, is a slightly different issue. And that is that the, the what Allah Azza wa Jal is saying according to that second view is that the people of the book especially will not stop from holding on to what they found in their scriptures because we know that both the Christians and the, and the Jews believe in a Messiah. They believe in a Messiah. They believe that a prophet will come at the end of time, a Messiah, and he will come and he will you know, bring salvation and, and so on and so forth. That's a belief that all of the three Abrahamic faiths share. As Muslims, we believe that Isa salam will return. And the Jews believe something similar. And the Christians believe something similar. We differ as to who and what circumstances and how. But we have that general belief that exists. Each of the... Uh, rather, actually, sorry, this is referring to something different. What, what, is not referring to the end of time. He's referring to the description that the Jews and the Christians found within their scriptures that after their prophets, a prophet would come. Right? It is linked to the end of time in the sense that they, because they disbelieve in the Prophet ﷺ, they say that the Prophet will come later on at the end of time. But the point is here that they found a description that another Prophet was to come. The Jews found that, the Christians found that. They found a description. They thought, though, that it would be from amongst them. So if you look, for example, in Bukhari, the long hadith of Abu Sufyan, when he speaks about how he went to the Roman Emperor, Heraclius, and he spoke to him, and he went through a long thing. One of the things that Heraclius says is that we knew that a prophet was going to emerge. They were Christians. We found it in our scripture, but we never thought that prophet would be from you, from the Arabs. Meaning, they thought that it would be from Bani Israel, because prophets for generations and generations have always been from Bani Israel. Now, all of a sudden, the prophet comes from the Arabs, the prophet wasallam. So what Allah is saying, that they will not leave the description of the Prophet that they were promised, they hold on to it, they're expecting it, they hope for it, until the actual Prophet is sent, meaning our Prophet Muhammad wasallam. then when they realize that actually this man is not from amongst us, this man is not from Bani Israel, this man is not from our line of Prophets or the ones that we consider to be our Prophets, then they will leave him. And that is what is being referred to here. 
Al-Imam Al-Tabri then says, And the strongest of those opinions, in my view, is he says that the disbelievers and the mushrikeen will not stop concerning the issue of the Prophet until clear evidence comes, and that is the actual sending of the Prophet by uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the creation. And so it's as if Al-Imam Al-Tabri ta'ala uh, goes more towards that second opinion and goes more towards that second view amongst the scholars. So we see here Imam Tabari making a, a a choosing a particular position. That position being that it's referring to the Prophet Why is he choosing the position that it's referring not to the Quran, right? Because bayina can mean the Quran. It can mean the Prophet Why does he choose the Prophet Because of the beginning of the second verse. Allah says, until clear evidence comes to them, Rasulun min Allah, a messenger from Allah. And so many of the scholars were of the opinion, those who chose that is the Prophet, they were of the opinion that Rasulun is badal. It takes the place of the clear evidence, meaning the clear evidence, Allah then clarifies what it is at the beginning of the second verse, and he says, Rasulun min Allah, a messenger from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You'll find that that opinion that it's referring to the Prophet ﷺ, is not just chosen by Imam Al-Tabari, but it was referred to and chosen by a number of the scholars of Islam. And clearly the difference between the two again is, is somewhat small in the sense that the Prophet ﷺ then brings the Qur'an, he comes with the Qur'an, and so that's referring to as well. Where the difference of opinion becomes more apparent is the Munfaqeen part. What is it that they're stopping? Is it that they're stopping, that they're just in their disbelief and the Qur'an comes and establishes evidence upon them? Or is it what Imam al-Tabari ta'ala, is saying is that what Allah is referring to is that them holding on to this vision, this hope, this dream of a prophet that they believe in, they hold on to until they realize that actually this is a different prophet because amongst the scholars of the, in the time of the Prophet of the Christians and the Jews, like even in the story of Heraclius, he understood that the Prophet was a true messenger of Allah Yet he refused to accept in him and believe in him because he wasn't from amongst his people. He wasn't from the Jews and the Christians and from Bani Israel. And that's the same thing that you find in the hadith of, of, um, of uh, for example, Abdullah ibn Salam, radiallahu anhu, the scholar amongst the Jews who becomes Muslims. And he says that indeed, O Messenger of Allah, we find your mention and your description as you are now, we find it in our scripture. But the Jews will now ignore it. They will hide it. They will not speak about it because it's not what they expected and they were disappointed. And you find, you know, if you look at, for example, the, the story of Salman al-Farsi, if you find, for example, in the story of when the Prophet was a young boy and Abu Talib takes him to Asham and, and, the, and the rabbi comes and he sees him and he says, this man is going to be a prophet. He's the one that that these people will kill if they find him out and he, they realize he's a prophet. This is before the Prophet is even given prophethood. And Salman al-Farsi, when he's searching, he's told to go to the land of date palm trees because their time has come and a prophet will soon appear there. And so he goes and eventually he arrives in Medina and that is where the Prophet comes after the hijrah. So uh, you have that, that position there amongst the scholars of Islam that speak about this. And that is what Imam al-Tabri says is the stronger opinion. I think we're going to stop there because this is a long discussion and so we've just begun the discussion but there is still much more to speak about because these are just two opinions that are mentioned and Imam al-Shawkani will mention some others and then others will, will mention some as well and that's why Al-Wahidi said that this is something which I found difficult to make tafsir of because of all of these different views and opinions that you find but at the end I think we will come to see uh, at least one or two uh, stronger 
opinions emerge at the end, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. May Allah azawajal give us the ability to continue to make the tafsir of this surah, inshallah ta'ala, next week. So inshallah, next week we're still back at the same time, 8.30, inshallah. So at some time, inshallah, we will, um, I hope, inshallah, change the time to 8 o'clock, but not, not at the moment. So 8.30, inshallah, same time next week, bidnillahi ta'ala, UK time, 8.30 p.m. So Mira has a question, do we know why Allah requested that this specific surah be recited to be Ibn Ka'ab radiallahu uh, For two reasons, what seems to be apparent in Allah knows best. Number one is for uh, to increase the virtue of Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu an. So similar like the hadith where the Prophet is told by Jibdi alayhi salam that Allah sends his salams to, uh, to Khadija radiallahu anha in the, the hadith Aisha radiallahu anha and so on. And so uh, that's a virtue, an extra virtue for a companion. So one of those companions is Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu an that Allah mentioned him by name. And secondly, because Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu an is a memorizer of the Quran and he's someone who preserves the Quran. And so when the Prophet would receive revelation, we know that he would have scribes, a number of companions that he would often recite the Quran to. People like Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Zaid ibn Thabit radiallahu an, you know, Salim the Mawla of Abu Hudayfa, Abdullah bin Mas'ud is considered to be from amongst them, the Khulafa, Rashid. These are people who are scholars amongst the companions and they are the Qur'an. They are known for their memorization of the Qur'an and their recitation of the Qur'an. And so the Prophet often comes to these people first. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Riaz, can you clarify what you say that one of the opinions of Al-Bayyina refers to the coming of Isa? No, it doesn't refer to the coming of Isa alayhi salam. What I'm referring to is that they would be, um, that they would be, uh, what we're saying is that the Jews and the Christians expected a prophet to come after their prophet. So for the Jews after Musa salam, they expected another prophet to emerge. The, the Christians after Isa expected another prophet to emerge. They then, when the Prophet came, because he's not from amongst them, rejected him. So now they say that there will be a Messiah that will come towards the end of time. Right? That's what they refer to now. For us, for example, we already know there's no prophet after the Prophet. So for us, the Messiah is Isa alayhi salam, a prophet that has already come and been sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, so um and Solange says that she has sent a link here for 40 odd English translations of something. Anyway. So inshallah, that's something which uh, which you guys can see the thingy for and, and you can refer to ta'ala. So with that, inshallah ta'ala, we are going to conclude. So inshallah, jazakumullahu khairan for attending. Inshallah ta'ala, I will see you guys next week. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.